All right, good morning, everybody. Let's try it again. Good morning, everybody. (laughs) Much better. Hey, my name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor here at Trailhead, and I want to wish you a merry, merry Christmas. Um, It's here. And so I do encourage you to come back out on Thursday evening at 5 o'clock. We're going to have a short service of worship together. What a great way on Christmas Eve to just gather and prepare our hearts um, as a body and celebrate um, the birth of our Savior. So join us here, 5 o'clock this Thursday. All right, this morning we're continuing uh, our Advent series, which is a series designed to prepare our hearts um, really for the coming of our Savior and to prepare our hearts to engage this season in a very meaningful way. So flip over to John chapter 1. We've been sitting there for the last four weeks. We're going to John chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the floor around you. Uh, And in our Bibles, we're going to page 886. 886, we're going to John chapter 1. We are going to read verses 1 through 18 together, uh, though we'll only be focusing on uh, the final verses, 14 through 18, this morning. All right, starting at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the uh, Father's side, he has made him known. The word of the Lord. All right, before I um, went into to full-time pastoral ministry, I was, uh, I was an educator. Um, I've mentioned this many times. I spent 17 years as a, as a teacher and a principal. I was a, a high school or a secondary English teacher and then a principal. And, um, you know, I enjoyed leading the school. I enjoyed doing the principal thing, but I really loved the classroom. Um, the classroom was where the, the life of the, of the school was. And uh, my passion was really working with underachieving kids and helping them find their voice and find their way. Um, absolutely loved grabbing those kids that were just um, kind of falling between the cracks and um, helping them to, to really just get a vision for their own potential and, and for growth. Um, one of the ways that I did that often was uh, in English, both through story and through writing. Um, Teaching writing was, was honestly one of the hardest things I did. 
Um, teaching people to communicate well in the written form is, is incredibly hard, but it was also one of the most rewarding parts of my job. Um, I was one of those English teachers that taught grammar, um, but I taught as a means to an end, right? It wasn't just about uh, knowing your, your nouns from your verbs or, or being able to tell uh, your verb tenses. It, the whole point behind grammar is to communicate, right? I mean, isn't that the point of language? Right? Isn't that why we have language is to communicate? And so the challenge of, of teaching writing is not teaching people how to follow formal English. Uh, it's teaching them to communicate clearly and passionately and, and powerfully. One of the rules that I taught my students during this time was the simple rule, show, don't tell. I'm sure your teachers probably taught you the same thing. Right? It's much more powerful to show instead of tell. So in fiction, instead of telling me that, that your character is sad, show me that your character is sad, right? Yeah, give me a description. Give me an experience. Give me something to enter into it, right? If, if, uh, if you're writing a persuasive essay, uh, don't just tell me that social injustice is systemic, right? Show me. Show me a, a minority kid who's growing up in poverty and how he faces challenges that, that I, as a non-minority, never had to face, right? Show me so that I can enter into what it is you're describing. Showing is much more powerful than telling, because it actually invites us to experience something, right? It's more than simply a cognitive event. It, it actually rem, uh, um, combines our hearts and our minds as we, as we enter into the experience of it. So here's the thing, you guys. When it came time for God to communicate his most important message to us, a loving message of hard truth, a loving message of immeasurable grace. He did just that. He showed. He didn't just tell. Right? He didn't just tell us that he loved us. He didn't just tell us we had a problem that needed to be solved. He showed us and then invited us in to the experience. Right? Verse 14 um, is really the climax of John's introduction here. And uh, the weightiness of it, honestly, has been kind of hitting me all week. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Um, the word became flesh. We talk about the incarnation. Incarnation is uh, just a word that simply means in the flesh, right? God coming in the flesh. Um, so I want to be clear about who we're talking about here, right? John makes it very clear in verses 1 through 3. He says, in the beginning was the Word. Uh, it's a, a poetic way of referring to Jesus. Um, the word logos, the, the original word for word, uh, the Greek word, uh, means a thought or an expression, right? So Jesus is the very thought or expression of God. He is the perfect message to us of who God is and what he's about, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, a glimpse into the eternal mystery of the Trinity, right? Three who's, one what, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit eternally existing in community, a dance of knowing and being known loving and being loved, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the same in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. He was, in fact, the Creator of all things. This Word, this God, the Creator and Sustainer of all things, became flesh. 
Verse 18, John unpacks a little bit of this further, right? Jump down to verse 18. It says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. No one has ever seen God. Now, it's a statement of reality, right? God is spirit and we are not. There's a sense in which there is a spiritual world around us that is real, uh, but it's not tangible to our five senses, right? In the same way God created us to exist in this world, he created a spiritual world that reflects his spiritual essence. He is spirit, so we can't see him. But, but this verse is saying a lot more than that. It's saying that there's a separation between God and man that keeps us from seeing him, right? In the Old Testament, this was represented through the temple, right? When you came to the temple to worship God, you had to go through a series of stages to draw near to God, and you could always only go so close, right? There was the outer courtyard, right, in which only certain people could come. There was an inner courtyard in which other people could come. And, and, and then if you were part of the Levitical priesthood, you could go into um, the, the outer court of the temple, right, which was called the holy place. And if you were the high priest, once a year, you could go into the holy of holies. So we see there's these degrees of separation from God, right? And that communicated two things. One, God wants us to draw near. God didn't leave us or abandon us. He wants relationship with us. But the second thing it communicates is that it's not safe for us to draw near. Those, those barriers were safety, right? The high priest, when he went to the Holy of Holies once a year, he wore bells around the bottom of his garment and a rope around his ankle. If those bells stopped ringing, they knew they had to pull him out. Nobody could go in there to actually retrieve his body. It was too dangerous. The holiness of God was unsafe for sinful man. No one has seen God. It's not simply a matter of physically being able to see him. It's a matter of of separation. It's not safe. You can't see God. Your sin makes you like dry kindling in the presence of a raging fire. His holiness would consume us. It would destroy us. And so we see in this paradox played out in the temple, a God who wants to draw near, but a God who's also saying, it's not safe and I'm going to protect you. I will let you draw close, but not close enough because you're not ready. Moses, uh, in the Old Testament, got about as close as anyone. Now, Moses was the the man who who delivered the Ten Commandments, right? He went up on Mount Sinai and God gave him the, the Ten Commandments. While he was there, he looked at God and he said to God, will you let me see your glory? Will you just let me see your glory? And God's like, mm, no, that would be too dangerous. But I'll tell you what, I'll let you see my backside. That's literally what he said. So he took Moses and he stuck him in a cleft of a rock to protect him, basically shielded him and then allowed the backside of his glory <laughs> to pass in front of him so that Moses could get a, a glimpse. And it was so radical, so transforming that when Moses came down from the mountain, he, he physically was altered. Like he was glowing, like he looked like he was the lone survival of a Chernobyl meltdown, right? And he was walking with this radioactive glow so much that people asked him to cover his face. It was unnerving, right, to see him walking, glowing through the camp in the middle of the night. And so they asked him to, to shroud it, right? Even the reflection of God's glory is unnerving to us, let alone actually being able to see it. No one has seen God. No one can see God and live until now. 
Until now. That's what he's saying in verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Right? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The verb dwelt um, literally means to tabernacle or to tent among us. It's a reference to the Old Testament temple when it was set up as a, a tent that, that God, when he um, became man, when he took on flesh, was in a very real sense the living, breathing embodiment of the temple. He was God's glory shrouded in human form, drawing near to mankind in a way that the building couldn't. This was God stepping out of the physical temple and becoming a a human temple to to become one of us, to walk among us, to invite us into his presence. He is the place where God dwells and he is the meeting place between God and man. God in the flesh. God, the word, the very thought, the expression of God, the essence of God, God himself became flesh. Can we just pause here for a minute? I found myself this week, um, I just kept running into this. Um, You know, because a lot of times when I'm formulating sermons, I'm really just trying to think through the text and what's the big take home and what what punches me in the gut and how can I punch others and, you know, in a godly way and an encouraging way, right? But but what's in there that that challenges me or encourages me? And and I'm a lot of times coming to the text just trying to work with it and think through it from a communicator's perspective, but I kept hitting this. The Word became flesh. It's an idea that I think I've become entirely too comfortable with. It's an idea that I think, honestly, many times has lost its wonder for me, not because it is not wondrous, but because I have become grown, I have grown cold uh, to, to the amazing truth that it reveals. We talk a lot about Jesus. We talk a lot about God. And in our words, I think sometimes we lose the wonder. You guys, in this moment, we're talking about God becoming flesh, the Word becoming flesh and tabernacling among us, tenting among us, right, dwelling among us. We have one of the most profound mysteries of of the entire Bible in front of us. The infinite became finite. The creator of all things became one of his creation. The eternal I am, the timeless one, the one who is at this moment standing at creation and standing at the consummation of all time, the great I am, the ever-present one, the one who doesn't know time because all things are present to him, entered time and was bound by its flow. The all-powerful one, the one who could speak the entire world into existence, could speak galaxies and light and life into existence, clothed his strength in the frailty of human flesh. God made of dust. He became a baby helpless, nursing at his mother's breast. 
needing his mother to clean him and to change him and to teach him to see and to speak and to use these foreign hands. The Word became flesh. God became man. You guys, this is amazing. It's actually kind of crazy. (laughs) Right? God made a home for himself, an eternal home for himself, the eternal meeting place between God and man. He, He didn't make himself a temple on a hill. He didn't shroud it with gold and gems. He didn't make himself inaccessible to to all but only the few that could make the ascent. He became a baby. It was a radical message. You know, Paul, talking to the Corinthians, talked about how difficult of a message this is to preach. He's like, this is the the message, by the way, that, that God is using to change people's lives and to change the world. That's what Paul's saying to the Corinthians. He's like, but to the Jews, it's a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, it's foolishness. Like, nobody gets this, right? When I talk about this stuff, it it is not normal to anyone. This is a story unique in all of history, right? When you look at history and you study stories, you see that that there there are lots of stories trying to explain man's relationship to God, and, 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 and this story is unique among them all, right? We see a lot of stories where men try to become gods, where men try to bridge the gap between them and God, We see many stories of them failing and falling short. We even see some stories, you look at Greek mythology and things like that, of of gods becoming men. But when they do, it's because they're doing it out of their weakness. They're doing it because they have some desire that can't be met in their celestial state. They are weak and and incomplete in themselves and, and are pursuing something outside of themselves. We look at these mythologies and we see gods made in the image of men. And their stories reflect our struggles. There's no story like this. The story of the one true creator God, the one who created heaven and earth becoming man, not out of weakness, not out of a helpless desire for something that he needs. He is the all-sufficient one, the one who is complete in himself with no desire or need outside of himself. He is the source and the measure of all power and beauty and glory. It is not out of weakness that it becomes out of man. It is because of our weakness. It's because we need him to become the hero of our story. We need him to come rescue us. His humility is his strength and his love is his motivation. And we see in verse 14 and in verses 16 through 17, the nature of his glory, right? Take a look at the end of verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse uh, 16, and from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John's setting up a tension 
here um, between truth and grace. There's always a tension for us um, in those things. There's no tension for God because He is full. That's what the text says. He is full of truth and grace. There's no competition within Him whether He is going to act in truth or act in grace. He is always acting in both because one of the essential attributes of God is harmony. There's no conflict in His nature. Every one of his attributes works fully and in cooperation with all of his other attributes. He is always working in truth. He is always working in grace because he is full of truth and grace. For us, that's unimaginable. Because for us, there is a tension between justice and mercy, between truth and grace. And we often pit the two against one another. God unites them and works out of that unity. In that tension, um, John says that the law came through Moses, an interesting insertion, right? He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the glory of Jesus and, and the rest of that. And then out of the blue, he's like, the law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus, right? Why does he bring up the law here? Because the law is an expression of truth, right? The law, when, when, when John refers to it, is, is really the old, whole Old Testament, primarily the first five books, what we call the Pentateuch of the Old Testament, it's, it's crystallized or most clearly seen in the Ten Commandments. That's what most of us would be familiar with, right? We're familiar with the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other God before God. You shall not make graven images to worship them. You won't murder. You don't steal. You don't um, covet. Um, when we look at these laws, what we get is an expression of what God expects from us, Right? We look at the Ten Commandments, and and we read those, and we say, okay, that's what God expects from us. But here's what I kind of want to push into a little bit is it's not just an expression of expectation. It's a revelation of reality. When God says these are the Ten Commandments, what he's saying is this is how I designed it to work. Not just here's a bar, work your way up to it. What he's saying is I'm going to give you a glimpse of the way life is supposed to be. You were created to never lust for what wasn't yours. You were created to never have hatred or murder in your heart. You were created to never have another God before the one true God. You were created to be the embodiment of what those laws express. So when he gives us the Ten Commandments, he is both giving us a statement of expectation, but also a description of the way things are supposed to be. What he's saying is this is what it means to be holy, to delight yourself first in God, to have no other gods before God, and then from that to work in love for others. Jesus summarized this when he was speaking to the people of his time by saying, you want to summarize the entire thing? It's in two commandments. Love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor like you love yourself. On these two laws, command all the law and the prophets, right? That's the summary of the whole thing. That's the description. Everything else flows from that place. You have those two things in place. You don't need any other laws. Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor like you love yourself. You have those two in place. You don't need anything else. The problem is we don't have those two things in place. We don't love God. We love our heart, souls, minds, and strength. We look to things that aren't God to be God for us. We look to things that aren't God to do for us what only God can do because we've rejected God. We've rejected the glory and the presence and the authority of God. And we look to things that aren't God to be God. 
And we no longer live in cooperation and, and community with others. We live in competition with them. They become a threat to us because we're building our kingdoms. And when we're building our kingdoms, their glory is a threat to our glory and their claim is a threat to our claim. See, the law came in as truth. It's truth. But it's only truth. It can show you your problem, but it can't show you how to fix it. It could point out your deficiencies, but it could not improve them. It exposes your shame, but it has no ability to reclothe you with dignity. So it does two things, right? It does two things. The first is, is in a sense, it acts like a, a splash of cold water on the face of a drunk man, right? It, it wakes you up to reality because in the drunkenness of our sin, we get distorted in our perspective, right? We like to look at life as if we were the tragic hero, the ones who are always wrong, the ones whose glory is always misunderstood, the one who should be getting what he deserves and what he wants, but for some reason just isn't. We, we fall into this drunken stupor of fantasy land where our glory is the center of all things. The law comes in and acts like a bracing cold water that awakens clear thinking and points out to us things about ourselves we don't naturally want to see. It highlights areas in which we fall short. It it shows to us that that no matter how hard we try to be good, we can never be good enough. Because the harder we try to be good, the farther we fall, or at least the more aware we become of how far we have fallen. It wakes us up. The second thing it it does is it acts as an external restraint. Because there are consequences to breaking the law, right? We know that. It can constrain behavior. So when it says, thou shalt not steal, and we then make laws that say when you steal, you're going to get in trouble, it constrains bad behavior, right? If there were no consequences to any behaviors, imagine how much different our society would be if there was no enforcement of law, right? So it highlights where we tend to fall short, and it also works as a constraint to the full expression of the brokenness that it highlights. It exposes evil. And it brings consequences for the outworking of that evil. But here's the thing, you guys. This is what I want you to see. It acts like a cast on a broken bone. It can keep it from from doing more harm. But it can't heal it. It has no power to reach in and actually restore life to that broken bone. It can highlight the break. It It can constrain it from doing more damage. But it can't fix it. This is why all personal religious effort always falls short. Our self-improvement projects never work. Our New Year's resolutions are always broken because we can't fix ourselves. And whether it's God's law or our personal laws, our efforts to fix ourselves, we don't have the ability. See, external truth alone is insufficient to fix the wound of our sin. It can bring shame, it can bring awareness, but it cannot bring transformation. For that, we need the internal working of grace. The law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus. It's popular today to see Jesus as a dispenser of grace 
That's how our culture likes to see him as, as kind of this, um, I don't know, warm and friendly, roving hippie that just likes to hug people, make them feel good about themselves. Um, we love to focus on grace, the one who forgives and pardons and gives dignity. I talk to people all the time who, who say foolish things like, well, Jesus never condemned anybody. Jesus just walked around making people feel good about themselves. Jesus just was this encouraging, warm presence. Jesus is the example of universal acceptance. See, it's popular today to see him as the embodiment and the presence of grace. But what we find is that he's full of truth and grace. See, there's a reason Jesus was hated and rejected. It wasn't because he made everybody feel good, right? It wasn't because he was walking around giving everybody big cosmic hugs, right? When you hung out with Jesus, you were made incredibly uncomfortable. It just happened. You see it all the time. People get really uncomfortable around Jesus. Why? Because just being in his presence has a way of highlighting things in you you don't want to see. By way of contrast, his gentleness highlights your harshness. His love highlights your selfishness. His determination to give God glory highlights your determination to claim your own. Jesus was the embodiment of truth and simply being in his presence had a way of highlighting things that made it even difficult for his disciples to be around him. They were continually challenged simply by being in his presence and listening to him and living around him. Because he had a way of exposing the deepest motivations of your heart, the things you don't really like to see. He had a way of bringing things to light that you didn't know were there, and when you do know, you really don't want to see because he is the fullness of truth. And the bottom line is this. What he highlights is this. You're broken in a way you can't fix yourself. You're sinful in a way you can't cure. It doesn't matter how religious you become. It doesn't matter how much you try to to put your moral self-improvement projects in place. It doesn't matter how much you try to white-knuckle it through life. You cannot bring life where there's death. And you cannot heal what is broken. He is unflinching and unwavering in bringing the light onto the brokenness of our souls. So what's the difference then between Jesus and the law? Well, the difference is he's not just an expression of truth, right? The laws were written on tablets of stone. That was God telling us we had a problem and highlighting that problem to create a tension and desire for a solution. Jesus was truth wrapped in flesh. Jesus was truth embodied in a man who looked at you and said, I see you, your sin, your brokenness, your broken motivations. I see it all, and I love you. I love you enough to show you the harsh truth. And I love you enough to do the work to fix you, to cleanse you, to forgive you. 
Jesus looks at us and he says, I hate your sin. But I love you. I am angry at your sin because it is a violation of all that is good and right and healthy. All that is beautiful, it robs the created order of the presence of the glory of God. I'm angry at your sin, but I am here to extend grace to you. And I'll do that by standing in your place. I'll take your penalty so you can stand in my place and take my glory. Ian Campbell said this. I'm going to put the quote up on the screen. The end of it especially I found compelling. He says this, The cross did not turn God's anger into love. The love and anger of God reside in the same heart. But in love, he provided a substitute upon whom his wrath was poured so that love and not anger might reach a guilty world. This is simply the New Testament doctrine of propitiation. Christ was made like his brothers in order that he might be a faithful high priest to make propitiation for our sins. God is angry with him at Calvary. And like the lightning conductor that takes the full force of the lightning strike to save the church steeple, he is struck that I might be comforted. I found that a very compelling image. Like the lightning rod that takes the full strike of the lightning, he takes the wrath that I deserve, that I might get the comfort of being in the steeple. Jesus was my substitute. That's why God had to become flesh. Not simply be the embodiment of a message, but to be the embodiment of the solution. He didn't come like the tablets of stone simply to show us our need. He came in flesh that he might meet our need. Not just to show us our sin, but he might die for our sin. And satisfy God in regard to the justice that our sin demands. Like a lightning rod, he was struck that we might be comforted. See, when John says, behold his glory, full of grace and truth, he is calling to mind not simply the incarnation, but the crucifixion. He's calling to mind not simply his invasion into this world, but the reason for which he invaded that he might be defeated, that we might find victory. He was born so that he might become your lightning rod, taking the full force of God's judgment on your sin so that you could be delivered from that fate and be brought back home. This is grace. Grace is God's unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor extended to us in Christ. So how much grace do we have? (laughs) This gets more amazing. Verse 16. And from his fullness, the fullness of who he is, not simply the fullness of what he's done. This is the outflow of his character. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Grace. Upon grace. I absolutely love this phrase. It calls to mind the repetition like waves on a shore. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. 
It is a never-ending flow of grace. A never-ending discovery of grace. An unstoppable force. Grace upon grace. Because Jesus was my lightning rod, because he was my substitute in judgment, I have grace. Because he took my place in judgment, I can now stand covered in his righteousness, covered in his protection, brought into the very approval of God. Right? Now here's the thing. Jesus didn't die to deliver me from truth. Right? Some want to use grace as an excuse to just get drunk on their sin. Well, there's grace. There's never-ending grace. And because there's never-ending grace, I can have a never-ending pursuit of my sin. There's always forgiveness. And those who think that way prove in their thinking and in their behavior that they themselves have never actually tasted of grace. Because anyone who has actually tasted of grace is changed. Because there's no force in the universe more powerful than love. Grace does in us what the law could never do for us. It realigns our appetites. It reawakens our desires. It doesn't deliver me from truth. Grace is here to deliver me into truth, to free me into truth. God in His grace loves us in the depths of our brokenness, and He loves us too much to leave us there. And when John talks about these waves of grace upon grace upon grace upon grace breaking on the believer's heart, breaking on the believer's soul, every time you turn around, there's another surprising wave of grace. Every time you fail, there's another surprising embrace of grace. Every time you fall short, every time you disappoint yourself, there is another embrace of grace. He is in that moment giving us a glimpse into his mysterious plan of redemption. It is forgiveness and it is transformation. Because love can do what law never could. It is by being loved in spite of your sin that you are changed. There's nothing that can change your heart like love. And as love changes your heart, it transforms your behavior. Grace frees you to embrace and live in truth. And it does it progressively. I think this is one of the hardest and most surprising and most beautiful truths in the Christian life that we only discover transformation by discovering and rediscovering grace. And how do you discover and rediscover grace? By rediscovering your need for it. And how do you rediscover your need for grace? By seeing your failure and your brokenness more and more clearly. 
A lot of Christians think that Christianity really is about believing in Jesus and I'm forgiven and now I get down to the hard work of obedience and I fix myself and I try to live a life as if I no longer need Jesus. What John is doing is is giving us a glimpse, not just into the reality of how God relates to us, but a glimpse into how he will transform us as we taste and retaste and retaste and are surprised again and again and again that God loves me that deeply. He is that committed to my good. He is not surprised by my failure. He's not standing there with his arms crossed with a look of distance and disappointment, waiting for me to measure up. He has the open arms of embrace. He has words of comfort and love and invitation in spite of my failure because I'm no longer measured by my performance but by his. And as that love breaks in, as I actually allow myself to be loved, as I awaken my heart to the reality of that love, as I set aside my pride and my need to prove myself and throw myself on that love, I am changed. And I am freed. This is how God changes us from the inside out. As we are loved by God, it awakens within us a responding love for God. You realize even that commandment that Jesus gave, love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, it's impossible. You can't do that. That's another impossible command if you're going to take it as a command. You seriously think you can make yourself love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Not a chance. You know how you get there? By letting your heart wake up to how much God loves you. All true change comes as a response to God's initiation. We don't change ourselves for God we respond to how God changed himself for us. And in response, we are changed. And in the end, do you see this is grace upon grace upon grace? There's no way I can ever stand before God and make any claim or boast as to my own moral performance, how I've changed myself, how I've fixed myself. I stand before God as one who has simply received wave after wave after wave of grace. It's all his glory. It's all his doing. See, as we taste his presence, we learn to orbit around his light and his glory and our sinful, broken appetites are changed. And instead of craving life from things that can't give it, we learn to crave life from him, the presence of his love and his approval and his glory. And we learn to to crave that light as our life. As we go into our Christmas celebrations this week, I'm just calling you to remind your heart of these truths. To stop just going through the motions. To wake up to the beauty and the wonder and the craziness of this grace. If you're an unbeliever, The invitation is in front of you. You are invited into this flow of grace, but the invitation is clear. John tells us, and Jesus himself reinforces, that those who would come to the Father must come through the Son. John says that that he came to his own and his own didn't receive him. 
But as many as who did receive him, even those who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God, to have this standing in grace. So I invite you this morning to receive him, to welcome him home by believing in his name. And it really is that simple. When you understand this, it makes sense why God's not waiting for you to fix yourself. God's not waiting for you to fix your problems before you draw near. He's not waiting for you to get moral or to stop doing that sinful thing or to stop, you know, clean up your life a little bit. That's like putting makeup on a corpse, man. You don't clean yourself up to draw near to God. You draw near to God because you hear the invitation to be made alive. Trust in his work and in his character and his word instead of your own. Humble yourself and stop standing on your own record and instead stand on his. Believe in his name and you shall be delivered. Receive him and you will receive grace. Believer, I want to remind you that during this season, it's important for you to remind yourself that God isn't interested in or impressed by your religious behavior. He wants you to respond to his grace. He wants you to find him lovely. He wants you to delight in him as the source of all that is delightful. He isn't impressed by your moral fortitude and he is not crushed by your moral failure. Your behavior your moral performance or lack thereof is secondary. What is primary is the affection of your heart. He wants you to be amazed at his glory. He wants you to be moved by his love. He wants you to be delighted in his delight in you. He wants you to see the beauty of Jesus because he wants to fill your heart with joy. And he wants you to find him supremely delightful. To be drunk on his grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. So this week, whether you're heading into a celebration full of joy, or the holidays for you are a time of emotional challenge and loneliness and conflict, remember that your greatest debt is paid. Remember that your greatest problem is already solved. Remember that your greatest honor and your greatest blessing is already given. It's already yours. The fullness is not yet realized. Right? We walk in faith and hope. The blessing is present and is being progressively realized in our lives. And we know that with the, the Advent season, we look at the birth of Christ, it awakens within us a yearning for His coming again, when He will bring the fullness of the kingdom and the fullness of the blessing to fruition. But it is already yours. Believer, your Father is not standing distant and disappointed. Your Father is not looking at you with an unapproving eye waiting for you to prove yourself. His vision is filled with Jesus. And all of his delight rests on you because you're covered in him. And from his fullness, you have received 
Grace upon grace upon grace. And from that place of fullness, when you let your heart be moved by that love, when you awaken within yourself or you allow God to awaken within you a response to that love, there will be a birth of contentment and security and joy that's not based in this world or the insecurities of this life. It's based in an eternal blessing given from an eternal God. And from that place, you can celebrate family and wealth and bounty without making an idol of it. And from that place of fullness, you can mourn a broken family. You can endure loneliness. You can even face rejection without being crushed. And even with your joy intact. Because, believer, for you, there remains grace upon grace upon grace. I'm going to put some reflection questions up on the screen. Uh, create a little bit of space for the Spirit to, I don't know, prompt your heart, draw you near. But as we prepare our hearts for Advent to celebrate Christmas, Let's awaken our hearts once again to the incredible, audacious love of God. I'm going to pray for us. We'll share communion in a moment. Father, I thank you that you sent your Son your very thought, your very word, the expression of the essence of who you are. that you unbelievably took on human form to tabernacle among us that Jesus might become the meeting place between God and man. We no longer have to approach through animal sacrifice, no longer have to approach fearful of your holiness. We are invited through the back door. We are invited through the family entrance to a throne of grace. Father, I pray that your spirit will be doing in our hearts what my words never could. Awaken within us a genuine joyful and awe-filled and humble and fearful response to the kind of love you've demonstrated to us. Allow us, Lord, to be filled with your fullness. Encourage those who are broken and hurting. Humble those who are prideful and cold. Invite those who are far and distant. Spirit, you're the one who does it all. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.